I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. Well, try this again. I've managed to record about 10 to 15 minutes of episodes on several occasions over the last couple of weeks and just have not been happy with the way that the uh, that they're coming out and so um just a little bit of a funk trying to get all my ducks in a row and and keep track of everything i'm doing recover from vacation um have a birthday and all that good jazz and just have not been able to um uh, record or uh get this article finished uh at all so we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot here um i'm gonna talk about a case that's uh fairly popular a lot of people probably know about <clears throat> and i just want to i think it's important that cases like this are are kept in out in public in the public atmosphere um, being talked about regularly in order to keep the uh, to try to hold uh, people accountable for for their actions now it's pretty typical if you uh if you're in the mafia or in the mob and you cross the dawn or you cross the family in some way, shape, or form, that you're gonna you're gonna come to a violent end. That you might get dropped out of a window. But people don't think about government in these terms. And Dave Smith has a really good quote. It's a, it's a really good way of describing government. And he says, government is, is the mafia pretending to be a human rights organization. But one of those stories of government assassinating just I don't even know if assassination is the right word just murdering a guy because they were afraid of him afraid of the information he had afraid of what he might do with that information who he might talk to um, if he'll go public is Frank Olson. Now the story that you're told, at least the mainstream narrative of, of the Olson story is pretty, it really hadn't changed very much in the mainstream 
but you're pretty much told that in the 50s when the CIA was doing drug experiments under the guise of MK Ultra that they tested asset out on or LSD however you want to call it uh, on on a scientist and that scientist had a bad trip and ended up jumping out the window of a hotel in New York City. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I've always found this story interesting, but it, I've, I, it was, uh, it wasn't, but it, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I decided to look into it further finally because it's something I'm really interested in. Is especially the MK Ultra and Operation Artichoke, which was the portion of MK Ultra that Frank Olson was working under, and he was doing what, what he was doing is they were working on what they would call enhanced interrogation techniques, aka torture. So I, when I was uh, when I was reading up on on the Frank Olson case, I ran into this docu-series, Wormwood, which they they spent six series, or six episodes, basically interviewing Frank, Frank Olson's oldest son, Eric, and um, his attorneys and friends, and then they ended the series by introducing Seymour Hirsch, the journalist, into the interview process. And so Eric is taught giving kind of a a point by point breakdown of, of what all happened. And I, I thought it was fairly interesting the way it ended up getting laid out. So I'm going to I'm going to run through these data points and and I'm going to try to do it in in order of of the events. So Frank Olson was a scientist that worked at Fort Detrick. And he was working in biological warfare. He he was creating, he was a lab rat that was creating uh, bio weapons. Like he was, he he was, he was producing anthrax and uh, I can't remember what other uh, drugs, botulism, I think was one of the ones he was, was working with. And, uh, He got, he was uh, approached, at some point he was approached by the CIA and they were wanting to work hand in hand with his division. And one of the things they wanted to do were create uh, mind, uh, mind control experiments under Operation Artichoke, which is where he fit in. They were looking for scientists to, to work 
I guess they were manufacturing new strains of LSD is all I can figure. Um, didn't really, I can't really tell exactly why they needed an anthrax guy. You know, like I, I couldn't, I, I haven't figured that much out. But I think what they were trying to do where they were trying to manipulate different strains of LSD. And so they were using these scientists to work on these, these different strains. And what the LSD was supposed to do, and what, they were, what they were trying to accomplish was you would give it to your own soldiers to create like this monstrous super soldier, quote unquote, that had no, no conscience and, and, and had no problem with murder that they would just kill without feeling anything about it. But they were also trying to use it as a truth serum. And it was used in interrogations where they would give the suspect a hit of acid, whether in a drink or whatever. And then they would interrogate that person. And it's supposed to relax the person more so than alcohol to where you can get more truth out of them. This, these are the claims they were making. So I've never tried interrogating anybody that was tripping, so I, I don't know if this is absolutely the truth. But, you know, maybe that, that'll be an experiment for another day. But, so, but that's what they were using this for. Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Well, Frank Olson began having objections first to the Korean War. He suspected, and I believe that he was probably in a position to know as much, that they were using biological weapons in Korea. Um, to what extent, I don't know. Um, I remember there's the quote-unquote false germ confession tapes uh, from that era when these soldiers were taken as POWs, confessed to, to germ warfare, and then when they got back to America, they recanted their confessions and said that these confessions took place under duress. Accept that for what, what it's worth. But Frank Olson suspected that the United States was taking the anthrax technologies that he was helping manufacture and using them in Korea. And he was... He was known to march to the beat of a different drummer. He was not your straight-laced military guy that just followed orders, sir. He was 
very mouthy. He was very strong in his opinions. And he was not afraid to say what he felt and and get out of line on occasion. With then he was traveling to Frankfurt, Germany to participate in the enhanced interrogations over there. And he saw several people die during these interrogations, during these torture sessions. And it really bothered him. And so he started getting uneasy. And there were mumblings about how he was not towing the company line, so to speak. So they ended up drugging him. They dosed him with LSD and interrogated him. Well, after this, after this incident, they told him what they had done. And he got very paranoid. He remembered being at at the location. He remembered starting to feel woozy and starting to feel funny as the LSD kicked in. And he remembered all his co-workers or cohorts laughing at him. And he, and he was very insecure about this. He felt like he had done something wrong. And he started getting paranoid. Enough so, within a couple of days of the drugging, they wanted uh, him to get into therapy, start, start going to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist they chose was a doctor named Abramson, who was an allergist, not a psychiatrist. And he specialized in drugs. So it's believed that Abramson began drugging Olson um, pretty regularly. He was also given kind of a wingman during this period by the name of Ashbrook. And then his boss, Vince Rouette, also tagged along during this period. Now, this period's kind of foggy. It's it's not real, real clear exactly what was going on here. What it looks like was happening where they they were drugging Olson and continuously attempting to brainwash him in order to make him think correctly because he was having the wrong thoughts. And this went on for about eight days. I want to say eight, nine days. And they were leaving New York to go back to Virginia. Excuse me near Fort Detrick, a town called Frederick, I believe it was. And they got back to Frederick and um, 
he was panicked. He was very paranoid by this point in time. I think he realized that his life was in danger. I think he realized that they were there was a serious possibility that he was going to wind up dead. And he, he got his boss alone, Vince Rouette, and begged his boss, just fire me. I'll disappear. Just fire me. I'll disappear. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I can't do it. Just fire me. I swear I'll disappear. And Vince Rouette said, I'm sorry. We can't do that, Frank. And so Vince stayed behind in Frederick while Ashbrook took Frank Olson back to New York. They checked into a hotel there um, off of 7th Avenue, I believe it was. I believe that's what they said. Um, And they got a room on the 13th floor. Room 1018A. And that night, around 2.30 in the morning, 2.35 I think it was to be exact, Frank Olson came out of the window and landed in the middle of the street. The official narrative that they told his family was that he fell or jumped. And that Ashbrook was asleep when it occurred, and he woke up right afterwards, startled by the noise, and saw Frank Olson down on the ground. Then, 22 years later, an article was published. And that article told a tale of a scientist that was drugged, had a bad trip, and jumped out of a window. And this was after the Rockefeller uh, investigation into the CIA. The Rockefeller Commission, I think is what it was called. And this was their findings based upon the documents they had. Now, to put it, put an end to it, to put kind of a, put a lid on the, on the story and try to muffle it as much as they could, the CIA allowed uh, Vince Rouette to disclose to the family that it was indeed Frank Olson that this story was about and that they were very deeply sorry. In the interim, the family decided to hire an attorney and start looking at possible legal action they could take. Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney exchanged memos during this time saying that they could not allow this lawsuit to go forward because it would require that the government disclose more information about the Frank Olson case than they were willing to disclose to the family. So they talked um, Gerald Ford into meeting the family in the White House and the Oval Office, offering a public apology, offering um, a settlement through the Senate, not through the court system. And 
the family went for it. They signed their non-disclosure agreements. They went ahead and took the $1.25 million settlement that they only got paid $700,000 of. And they thought that was that. But Eric Olson would not let this go. There were things, there were, there were questions unanswered. So they got in front of the head of the CIA. His name was Colby at the time. And they were giving, given a box of documents that were highly redacted and were fragmented and didn't tell the story in completion. And they just couldn't put two and two together. Nothing was making sense. So Eric continued to look into it. And he continued to investigate. And he continued to ask questions. And as time went on and he continued to ask these questions, people's stories began changing. Ashbrook no longer woke up after the commotion. He actually woke up and told Frank Olson to calm down and, and to, to go to bed and, and to stop whatever he was doing. Then Frank Olson was putting on a shoe and he lost his balance and fell out of a window. But none of it ever added up. And in 1994, after Alice Olson, Frank Olson's wife died, Eric and his brother, brother Niels had his father's body exhumed and pulled up from the grave. And they had forensics, a forensics expert look at it. I believe his name is Dr. Starr, and he's a friend of the family. And he specialized in cold cases and exhuming bodies and, and uh, doing forensics analysis on exhumed bodies in order to find suspects in cold cases. So when he did his forensic analysis on Frank Olson, there was a hematoma over his right eye. I believe it was. I believe it was his right eye. That could only come from a blow to the head that was, that was suffered before the fall. He showed no evidence of lacerations on his skin from the glass, from going through the window, from, from going through the glass. And he had several broken bones from his fall or his sudden stop at the end, I guess it was. And he came to the conclusion, him and um, another forensic forensics expert both came to the conclusion that he was murdered that this was not a suicide by any stretch of the imagination and that he was murdered Eric Olson then contacted in 97 he contacted the um the federal government and received 
the assassination um i don't know what to call it book it's the it's the book on on how to commit an assassination that was published in 1953 and it was the first book of its kind that the cia ever published and and handed out on um assassinating people and sure enough the number one way that they suggest that you assassinate people would you smack them over the eye with a hard object knocking them unconscious and then you drop them out of a window or off of a building that is at least 75 feet in the air. So now we're on to this cold case that Eric Olson gets investigators involved in. In which they are unable to, to chase down the actual culprits involved here. And in 2001, they dropped the case because most of the people that were involved were dead and they were not finding any new evidence. Finally, Eric Olson went back to Seymour Hirsch, who had published the first article. And he spoke to Seymour Hirsch and he told Seymour Hirsch, you don't understand the CIA executed my father. Seymour Hirsch told him he was crazy. Eric Olson said, well, you're the big shot. You're the one with all the connections. Find out for sure. He pushed enough buttons where Seymour Hirsch decided he was going to contact an inside source in the CIA and ask some questions. 40 hours later, Seymour Hirsch got in touch with Eric Olson and told him, you're right. I found out the CIA did assassinate your father, but I cannot tell this story without giving up methods and sources. And Seymour Hirsch, to, to this day, or to 2017, when this was recorded, stands by the fact that he cannot give up methods and sources. But he very much says the CIA did assassinate Frank Olson, that he was considered a dissident, that was uh, that was a danger to take his knowledge and his resources and go to uh, the Russians and turn, you know, double agent, I guess you might say, and that the CIA was terrified of the Russians getting the information that Frank Olson was in possession of. And they felt they had no choice but to kill him. He cannot disclose how he knows this. He cannot disclose who told him this. All he can do is disclose in the vaguest of terms that this is most likely the scenario. And so they had to get rid of a problem named Frank Olson. Now, at what point do you look at a federal government 
and decide it's no longer a legit power. It is a mafia. How much extortion and murder do they have to be involved in? How much counterfeiting do they have to be involved in? How many cover-ups? How much information do they have to hide? See, because if I understand correctly, when the Constitution was written and the Founding Fathers were framing this nation, it was done so under the auspice that transparency, not secrecy, was the number one thing. Yet we have all, all these scenarios, all these cases over the years of the CIA or FBI or the NSA lying in front of Congress, lying to the American people, bragging about having classes on how to lie, being masters of misdirection and deception. And we know all these things about these people. We know all these things about the national security state. We know all these stories, all these victims, the coups, the the failed coup attempts in Cuba, um, the assassination of JFK, you know? And people that want to say, well, if, if that would have happened, you would have somebody would have talked by now. Well, actually, people did talk, and they were just considered kooks and discredited. People that said they were there, that said they know what happened, that said they were involved in what happened. Several people. Was that? It was a name. E. Howard Hunt was one of them. He has a deathbed confession you can find on YouTube. He confesses. And he was involved in all kinds of crazy shit. We know he was involved in all kinds of crazy shit. There's uh, Frank... Um, oh, I can't think of his last name right now. But he was... He was... Uh, had assassinated several people. There's... But... The excuse always is... Well, if, if it would have been a conspiracy, somebody would have talked by now. Well, people, people have talked. And every time people talk, they're considered discredited or not reliable. And I'm saying that the government, the people that are coming out with this mainstream narrative, are discredited and not reliable sources of information. They're the ones who should be held to the higher standard. They're the ones who have not told the truth. They're the ones who allow American citizens to be assassinated. They're the ones who told the Olson family that if they were able to prove negligence, they would have won the lawsuit that they eventually filed. But because it was an intentional homicide, the government was not responsible for paying out to victims 
of an, of an intended execution, an intended assassination. Had they been negligent, the family would have been due a settlement. But because it was an execution, because it was an assassination, that the family is not due any retribution. This is what they were told in federal court. And yet still, people are out there defending the state. When it's right there in black and white, day in and day out, how they are treating average citizens. How they victimize their own people. How they drug their own people. How they murder their own people. Not to mention all the killing that's going on all over the world in the name of national security. They can do anything in the name of national security. If it, if they are protecting the sources, the national security of the United States, if they are protecting methods and sources, they cannot be prosecuted for any crime whatsoever. Whether it be murder or running drugs, they are above the law in every sense of the of the statement they cannot be held to account there are definitely two tiers of justice in this country and i don't understand how people can see this and continue to participate in this system I say I don't understand. I actually do understand to an extent. But I still don't know why we are we are not seeing more people hold the powerful to account. For the, for the wrongs that they have done and the wrongs that they continue to cover up to this day. Remember, Trump promised to release the JFK files that were left. I'm almost certain there's nothing left to, to find out, maybe little tidbits here and there, but we're not going to see the real story. We're not going to have names named, names dropped. We're just not going to know. And still, the FBI and CIA are blocking him from having these documents released, even though it was a court-ordered release date. He said he would release them in six months, and here we are two years later, and he still hadn't released them. Don't expect these secrets to come out. But, and don't expect Congress to do the work for you in these little hearings in which they, the director of the CIA can say, oh, well, I'd rather answer that behind a closed door, uh, in a closed door hearing because it's a matter of national security and 
for special ears only. These things are going to continue to happen just as they have always continued to happen since the beginning of the national security state that we live in. In 1947, the National Security Act was signed into law, and that destroyed any idea of a constitutional republic anybody had the delusions of possibly conserving at any point in time. This wasn't quite as smooth as I hoped it would be, but it was a lot smoother than the last few I tried to do. But I appreciate y'all hanging in there with me. I will be back on again shortly. Hopefully I'll get you another episode this week. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late. <laughs>